This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org. This is Walter Koenig, Chekhov from Star Trek, and you're listening to Trek FM. You're a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I am Ken Tripp. And I am Zach Moore. And we discuss how Star Trek changed paradigms and thought and entertainment and a show that changed the course of old tropes that challenged the mindset that we can improve. In fact, you could say at times it can be a bit over the top, <laughs> but we're going to discuss an episode uh, when Star Trek brought its viewer into a new line of modern thinking, creativity, and charity. Yeah, I, I really enjoy this episode. So the Corbamite Maneuver is an episode that began, that really began the thought process that this show could be very different, right? Science fiction wasn't new in the 1960s, and you had the monsters and threats of the week that they were common back then. But this this was specifically for me a great episode in how to deal with threat, controlling our fear, seeking to understand and bridging a gap to understand something alien to our culture. Yeah, you know, with in, in, in old school science fiction, right, the, the aliens are always the enemy, you know, especially, you know, the way Balok is presented here for most of the episode. He is the classic like large-headed alien and once again once again star trek kind of being ahead of its time this is before the you know the gray if you will the gray alien that we always see these days little bodies big heads big eyes you know that's the cliche alien if you see in you know the x-files it probably popularized popularized it more in modern culture but then if you see any kind of parody about you know Tucky's tier leader or you know little ufos and stuff it's always these little gray guys with these big heads with this i guess almond shaped head is that the right you know yeah (laughs) term so uh star trek ahead of its time yet again you know and and you see that and you think this is the enemy but the whole point of this episode is is putting aside those preconceptions and uh finding a friend where you otherwise might have found an enemy so yeah i think so i also think that um i wonder if if Patrick Stewart went watched this episode and said, "Ah, I know how I'm going to play Picard just by watching Baylock." Right? <laughs> he had the, the deep voice imposing, and you know, it was it was kind of kind of similar. No? Well, he didn't surrender okay. at the end of the episode. So no, 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 no. In fact, he didn't. No, he was all testing. But <laughs> you know, for me, um, when we were talking a, a week or so ago about what topic should we do, and you know, we we. We are trying to find that right balance of getting uh, new listeners in and enjoying the movies and 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 the reboots. But man, you know, you go back to classic Trek, and when I say classic Trek, I put the quotes around the Corvermite maneuver. And rewatching it again, it's just one of those episodes um, I could watch as many times as it was on because I really enjoy it. 
I, I watch it through, I guess, a different a different lens now. And, you know, there's it isn't perfect by any means, but for its time and for what it did, it was just it was just amazing. And, you know, it was it was kind of clever. So here's the, you know, the Enterprise. It's it, it was it was one of the first productions um, they're exploring, right? It was United Earthship, not yes. United Starship yes. at this time. Uhura right? is wearing gold. She was wearing gold, which fit her very well, by the way. I wish they kind of kept that. I, um, I don't know. See, you say that, but it, I, I'm glad she switched to red because it kind of breaks up the bridge a little bit because you get these wide shots. And if you're looking like the classic, like you get the two guys at uh, navigation and the helm and you get Kirk and you get Spock over there and you get her. I'm like, that is a lot of gold. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of Spock's the only guy breaking up that gold. So I can see why. I mean, look, Michelle Nichols looks good in anything, but she looks really good in red. I thought <laughs> it helps break up the gold. She so. does, well, hey, you know, she was, she is. I mean, she's she's a very beautiful woman, and um, I, I don't know. It was just something about, um, and maybe it's the way I capture it in my head, right? Because if you're if you're wearing gold, um, you know that that's considered more or less a line officer. Line officers get to command, but you know Spock breaks that paradigm by by wearing blue and, and being able to command and second and same with Scotty and things like that. But um, so that I guess in my mind it's like okay, it puts her on an equal footing to potentially be sitting in that chair. Huh. And that was really an episode too where I kind of felt for her because I, you know you could do the drinking game with hailing frequencies open uh, with this episode, yeah, particularly for her. You, she, you would she, probably it, pass out. I think so. She said it a lot. Uh, God bless her. But, um, you know, the the other thing I liked about this, too, is this is when I really started to realize the whole McCoy um, impact to the show, right? Um, we had seen a few episodes by this point, if you were watching in chronicolo- chronological order, I can speak well. And um, and McCoy really comes into his own on this. You know, he, he picks the wrong time to pick fights. <laughs> he loves to argue. Um and one of the things that I caught, you know, was a line that he said in his, you know, if, if I was to um, jump every time I saw a blink, uh, blinking light around here, I'd wind up talking to myself, right? And I was thinking of Star Trek V. And I was like, okay, so that wasn't an original line. I had just kind of forgotten that. Um, and I don't know if he says it more and more in the series. That's something I'm going to have to do a little bit more searching and, on. And of course, he is talking to himself when he says that, which is, is, which is part of the comedy. But yeah, that, that's, yeah, that's baked into McCoy's character. This, I mean, this is DeForest Kelly's first episode, right? Right. Uh, in, in, in production order. And McCoy is so well realized here, right? I mean, it's just like... He is. Yeah. From the jump. Yeah. And, and, and the whole thing that I, I really enjoyed and probably was one of my... Uh, one of the things that, that really had me liking Star Trek was... The, the order and discipline on the ship. Um, you know, uh, Kirk was taking his physical. There's an emergency. He's got his crew in charge. Um, you know, th- there wasn't that loud red alert yet. They hadn't they hadn't kind of um, worked that into the show at this time, just a blinking red light when things go bad, but no alar- alarms. Um, and everybody knew their job, took care of their jobs, and, and Kirk seemed such, such the normal heroic type captain. And some of his lines in this show were, were great, especially when dealing with Bailey and his inability to kind of um, handle things. But anyway, um, those those were just certain aspects that I like. When we, we talk about the show, um, and we'll kind of go from beginning to end, I think everybody's seen it. If uh, they need a quick synopsis, I guess we could do that quickly. Huh? Yeah, yeah, I, I can I can summarize this 
try time me folks let's see how let's see how quickly i can get through this but so so this is the the general long and short of the corporate night maneuver not the carbonite maneuver that's star wars uh i know when i was younger i just get these confused but there's Corbamite and there's Carbonite. There's a difference. So, See, Star Wars stole from them again. <laughs> Star Trek did it first yet again. Um, so the episode starts out. The Enterprise is star charting, you know, unknown space. Uh, they come across a colorful cube that blocks their path. Uh, they try to get around it, but it keeps you know getting in front of them. They cannot escape it. Uh, they, they try really hard to get away from it, and then it starts emanating radiation, which is deadly to the crew, obviously. So they have no choice but to destroy it. And then they're presented with the opportunity: okay, do we move forward or do we turn around? Because Spock basically postulates this thing had two purposes: it was either a warning buoy to stay away, or flypaper to trap us for something bigger to come and deal with us later. Either way, uh, not good for the Enterprise. So, so logic would dictate, you know. To turn around, but Kirk's like, no, no, we have to keep going. This is our mission. To, as, as they say many times in this episode, the, the mission of the Enterprise to seek out and contact alien life. So you can kind of you can tell that this was the first episode. They're establishing their mission statement. So I thought that was interesting. So they they press forward, and uh, as they press forward into this uncharted space, they come across a much 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 bigger ship, a spherical ship uh, called the Viserys. They're from the First Federation. And these these are I've compared these before to like it's the Borg ships of their time, right? They're all these these uh, geometric objects of various sizes, right? And uh, it's the you get the iconic shot of the Enterprise coming up on this giant ship, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Takes up the whole screen, uh, the Viserys, and uh, they get uh, over the comm system. They get Commander Baylock, and he says, "You have ten minutes, and he will be destroyed. You've been found unworthy." And uh, so so it starts this countdown. Of okay, we're gonna you, you violated our space, you ignored our warning buoy. We're going to destroy you, and that's the end. He, that's the end of conversation. Like there's no negotiation. Kirk Kirk keeps going back and forth. As we mentioned, Ura has to keep opening hailing frequencies. <laughs> uh, and gosh, I, she probably says it six or seven times in this episode. Hailing frequencies open. Like if you made a, a super cut of her uh, with saying that line, about probably half of it would be from this episode. But uh, they go back and forth, and uh, meanwhile, while this is going on, our uh, our navigator, uh, this is pre-checkoff, all right? This is season one, so it's uh, Mr. Bailey, and uh, he has a little subplot in this episode of, you know, just probably not being up to up to the task, right? Uh, it's, it's referenced that Kirk might have promoted him too quickly. Uh, he starts to kind of buckle under the pressure. He's sluggish to respond to orders and gets kind of easily overwhelmed with the situation. Uh, it all comes to a head when, you know, Baylock starts counting down, like, we have seven minutes left, and Bailey starts freaking out. He's like, he's doing a countdown, and, and he flips out, and, and Kirk has to uh, dismiss him from duty. Uh, McCoy, who had been talking to Kirk about Bailey uh, earlier in the episode a couple of times, uh, calls Kirk out and says, I'm going to write this up in my medical report, which is, by the way, an absurd time to talk about this because we're literally five minutes away from complete destruction, and you're going to talk about <laughs> writing Kirk up in your medical report. Uh, but... Regardless, you know, this sets Kirk off, and he says, don't try to bluff me, Doctor. But that gives him the inspiration to to bluff Baylock, right? Because Spock had compared their situation to chess. It's like when the player is outmatched, the game is over, checkmate. But then Kirk gets this inspiration from, from Bones' uh, Bones's an- antagonization about poker. And he's like, not chess, Mr. Spock, poker. So he gets back on the comm, and he uh, bluffs to Baylock that they uh, all Earth ships have a device called Corbamite, which uh, matches the destructive force met from its adversary and destroys the enemy ship. And it's been in, in earth service for 200 years. And it's a secret. 
because uh, the first Federation ship, the Viserys, had scanned the Enterprise and read all its records, so Kirk had to say that this is a secret. But uh, we just we thought it's fair to let you know that if you destroy us, you will be destroyed as well. And, you know, they're still waiting on the countdown. They get no response to this. It seems like Balak doesn't care. But then the timer goes out. Enterprise is still there. Uh, so everybody's pretty happy about that. But they're not out of it yet because uh, uh, Balak gets back on. He's like, your destruction has been delayed. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, the I'm going to call it the little Viserius. Now, the little Viserius comes out. It's the command module of Viserius. Comes out. The uh, <laughs> Ken is doing the mini-me uh, pinky to the mouth now. But yes, the, the mini Viserius. We'll call it that. Um <laughs> Uh, the big Viserius goes back uh, from whence it came, and the mini Viserius uh, is going to tow the Enterprise to a Class M planet to unload the crew, and then, of course, destroy the Enterprise. That's what Balok announces. Uh, but obviously, it's a much smaller ship, so there's a lot more strain on it. So over time, the Enterprise waits for its waits for its moment of opportunity to break away from uh, the mini Viserius' tractor beam. It does. This shorts out the power on mini Viserius. Uh, Balok sends out a distress call. Uh, that uh, his systems are failing, his life support is failing, he's in, he's in trouble. Uh, the power is so weak, though, on many facilities that the Enterprise is probably the only one in range that heard the call. Kirk decides that we're going to go help them because, you know, that's what we do. Uh, we take the high road, right? The golden rule. And they beam over there. Uh, Kirk takes McCoy and Bailey, again, putting Bailey in a situation he's probably not prepared for. Ba- Bailey had come back on the bridge right before uh, the timer had expired to kind of, you know, go down with the ship at his post and everybody had kind of come to an understanding there uh, with him. And Kirk Kirk had felt, felt kind of bad probably about how the way he treated him. So he's like, I owe you a look at the unknown. Come with me over to the mini Viserius, uh, which is an interesting choice of a weight team, but it's uh, a, way, a landing party, I guess. This is A weight team was a next generation term. In the original series, they called it a landing party. But this would be this would be a boarding party. So the boarding party is Kirk, McCoy, and Bailey. They beam over. Uh, it's a smaller ship. Uh, so they kind of have to crouch over when they beam over, which is which is kind of a funny visual. Uh, they get onto the Viserys, and they they see that uh, the Balok they had seen on the screen that had been presented to us, as we mentioned earlier, the the gray alien, big headed uh, looking guy, is just a puppet. Uh, then we hear from another room that "Hello, I am Balok," and <laughs> it's a it is a uh, a, a child like alien. Obviously, you know uh, th- this race is just smaller in stature, right? And uh, he looks like a child, but uh, he is the commander of the, of the Viserys. He explains that uh, he uses the, the Balok visage as an intimidation factor to make people scared. And he says that uh, you wouldn't be scared of me. I don't know. I probably would have been more scared of, <laughs> of little Clint Howard. Because <laughs> it's kind of it's eerie, right? It's eerie that this, this little guy is an is a, is a alien commander. But they all, they all have a good cup of Tranya. And uh, Balok just says this was all a test. Uh, to see if, if you were you know worthy or if your intentions were true. Uh, Enterprise passes the test. Uh, Balak also says that he's lonely. He's the only guy that controls the whole Viserys. He, he would like some company. Kirk volunteers Bailey, and Bailey's all excited about it. Says, oh, yeah, absolutely, sir, I volunteer. So Bailey's going to go hang out with Balak for an indefinite amount of time. Uh, and then they go on a tour of the Viserys that we don't really get to see because you know it's the 60s and there's no budget, but that's fine. And the episode ends, and you know, we learned that uh, again. Don't judge a book by its cover, right? It's, it's a good old Aesop fable wrapped into a 23rd century package in the corporate might maneuver. So there you go. That's the long and short of it, Ken. Oh, that was very, very well. That was very detailed, actually. Because um, if you think about it, watching watching it like um, uh, I guess I watched it last night. The um, you could cut a lot of this show out. Uh, there's a lot of staring at view screens. There's a lot of. Uh, 
at times with it just close up on the faces, uh, kind you know, with all these colors flashing, it was kind of a prelude to the motion picture in many ways. I, I absolutely, it, it, I absolutely thought I got that same vibe, Ken. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and and it's like okay, you you could probably have knocked this down, and so the story itself was short, and they could have got the message across, but of course you have to fill out whatever it was, forty eight minutes of. I believe it was, gosh, I think it was fifty two minutes back then. So it's fifty two, as opposed Weren't to these forty minutes then? of today's hour television. Yeah, yeah, it's a whole different world. But at any rate, it it still was fine. The other thing was too for back in the day, the special effects were were, were pretty big, and that's why the show broadcast when it did. It took a while. To get all the effects shots done, even though it's a it's a really a bottle episode, it's it's you know ninety percent of it takes place on the on the bridge with a little bit in Kirk's quarters and and the um, sick bay, and then uh, an even smaller amount in some um, beatnik hippie parlor uh, that is Baylock's ship, I guess. But <laughs> it, it definitely had you know <laughs> they they spared no expense on on the curtains. For uh, for Baylock ship, but at any rate, it was it was really really cool. I mean, it it, it the it starts off, which I thought was really interesting, with the whole buoy, you know, and and what's the next step? Because they sit there for eighteen hours. They they make that that clear, and they're trying to figure out, okay, what do we do? Do we go forward? Do we go back? Do we turn around? What do, what happens? And um, you know, it's it's funny because every step of the way, the young inexperienced officer wants to do. Um, what an inexperienced person does when they're when they're afraid, destroy it, move away, run away. And you have Kirk, who obviously is a young commander, is really schooling everybody on that ship on to how we're going to approach this. And um, they come up with a pretty unique, you know, we're going to we're going to you know, do a spiral course and try to get around it, which which doesn't work. But prior to that, you know, um, Spock's, you know, it's either two things. It's a warning or it's flypaper and, you know, a trap for other ships to come get them. And they, they, they decide to go on, which I thought shows a lot of, lot of maturity and a lot of risk. Um, you know, you, you put yourself in certain situations. Um, you really do have to understand the mission. Uh, and it kind of harkens back to, to the days of NASA, you know, in the, in the mid-1960s. Um, there were a lot of things that went wrong. Uh, you know, uh, trying to get into space. I mean, for all their successes, there was a lot of loss of life, a lot of loss of equipment. Um, the, it was an emboldened age where, when people took risks. And that's what I saw Captain Kirk kind of driving from. You know, this this mindset is maybe it's the wrong decision, but this is what we do. We we drive forward. We try to, we try to seek out and, and find new alien life that is our mission not to to turn tail and run and it kind of had this um not not so much a macho feel to it but you know what this is what drove explorers for centuries in earth right people that had that um that ability to jump above their fears not to, not to take the easy road and to keep driving and so in many ways i felt this episode defined captain kirk yeah that's an excellent point ken because there's a reputation that Kirk has little fire phasers and, you know, he's not the diplomat that Picard is in the future, but here he's the guy saying, all right, let's cool it. Let's, let's talk. Let's think about it. We're not just going to blast our way through things. Uh, he's, you know, very taking a very mature approach to it. And you, you, there's a lot of leadership skills you can learn from Kirk here, you know, and, and that's, that's the great part in this episode because, you know, we, we can all kind of put ourselves in the Bailey role, right? Cause he, he, I think he's the audience in, in this episode, he's the point of view character because he's so, you know, overwhelmed by what's going on. And, and, 
you know, yeah, he's a Starfleet officer, but he's younger and he was promoted quickly. So that's a point that, I mean, th- there are reasons for him to act the way he does, right? Because everybody else is, is pretty cool during all this, right? Sulu's doing the, he's like, oh, well, we have five minutes left. You know, he's, he's doing the countdown and that's the stuff that kind of sets Bailey off. But everybody else is just kind of facing death with dignity and uh he's having a problem with it you know and and i think you know i don't know ken you're you're a military man right do you think someone in that position would have faced their death with dignity like that or is like what 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 would you know in your point of view right if this is a you know on this on this naval like vessel that the enterprise is right uh what what would the general reaction to something like this be would people be more like bailey or would, would these trained officers be more like everybody else uh you know in in star trek 2 when 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 Kirk is saying we have to put the ship on active duty and he asks Spock if these got if these kids are ready, you know, and how will they respond? And he says kind of each with their own gifts. In this episode, I felt that uh, that probably in today's world, uh, it, it would be a real mix. Um, there are there are people that that join the service, I think, um, and they did when I joined, uh, especially in the 90s when after the um, after Gulf War One, you know, there really wasn't. A lot going on, you know. The, the the Soviets were done, and and so forth, and people were trying to to screen around for a meeting. And I know people that joined to go to school and all this other stuff, but not necessarily, um, you know, to go on adventures like this. I think the difference is, um, and and what makes it difficult to compare to today's Navy and fleet is there's probably several other ships around. Um, you're not all that far away from support if you need it. There are times when you are, of course. But the enterprise is truly alone, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I guess I would, I would, uh, I, I would almost compare it more to maybe submarine warfare. I've never been in a submarine, but I'm assuming that that's what it must be like. Where, you know, you have the elements as a danger. If the ship fails, you die. Um, that's true. You yeah. know, the the odds of survival are pretty low. I'm sure they've they've got you know plenty of redundant systems, but. Um, I would think that there would be a level of training for each of those officers. For those that serve aboard submarines, they have to go through a lot of psychological testings. They really have to be tested um, to to really um, understand if they can handle kind of a claustrophobic environment, um, you know, because it, it hasn't always been successful there either. So I would think that the crew of the Enterprise would be more like that was demonstrated for every one person that was kind of panicking, the other eight or nine around them would be fine. Right. And um, everybody has a breaking point. And that's where McCoy was really hard on Kirk because he says, you push this kid too far too fast. And so there must be something that's very measurable in that timeline to make sure that people are ready for the strains and stresses. You know, and that's why for me, um, not to jump on a TNG type thing, but that was always a piece of having the families aboard that, that I didn't like was you're putting a lot of people that didn't sign up for every, anything at risk in a very um, scary environment or potentially devastating environment. So, you know, that, that was that was one of the things about that show that when you go back to an episode like this, and there were many times in TNG when they faced similar circumstances, this became a trope in Star Trek. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, you even know, as, as early as the original series, like season one, like they, they find a advanced alien race who who has to determine if they are worthy to survive right that's right that's right so you you see it a lot and uh so it just it just to me i guess um it really hones in on how well thought out this this show was in its mission um that they truly are explorers that they're very much on their own 
that their risk is high at all times. And it really defined, I thought, Captain Kirk as the ultimate commander. Because you're right, Zach. There's a, there's a lot of things like, oh, he's quick to fire phases, all this other stuff. You know, if you switch Kirk with Cisco, it's the same cap, really. They're both extraordinarily intelligent, very strategic. And, you know, once in a while, they don't hesitate to throw a punch. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which... Which is, you know, sometimes that, that stuff happens. But, you know, there was recently, too, something that was put on Facebook that shows really the amount of times that Kirk got entangled with, with a woman. It really wasn't that many. And um, so there's a lot of things that kind of got uh, that got caught up, like a few episodes defined him versus the whole body of work. But what I really liked about his command style was um, he was definitely the leader. You know, there was... He would do things to check to see if his orders made sense, like bouncing off um, what he thought he should do with with Spock. And Spock comes back to him and says, why do you ask me if you've already made up your mind, right? right? And he likes to have that emotional check that he's going in the right direction. Right, well, and that's important as a leader to, you know, give everyone under you an equal voice, but then ultimately have the confidence in making your own decision. Because if if you're a leader... And you're uncertain. That's 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 kind of that's poison in the water, right? Then everybody gets uncertain. You're like, well, I'm listening to this guy up here. He does. He's not even sure what he's doing, right? But it, it, you know, it's it, you, again, you know, you can learn. Star Trek has such great captains. You can learn a lot of leadership skills from these guys. Uh, even even a quote unquote hothead like Kirk, right? Because as we're always saying, there's a the stereotype has developed over the years. Yeah, he broke a few rules, but he, he's pretty by the book when it comes down to it, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, in the movies. He's a little more rebellious, but if you look at the show proper, he's always, you know, uh, stressing over violating the prime directive and, you know, sticking to their orders and all that kind of stuff. So he's, he's a, he's a, he knows what he's doing, right? He's not just, he's not out there just, you know, phasers first, you know, shoot first, ask, ask question later. He, he's just shoot first, ask questions later. He's just as thoughtful as the, um, uh, perception of Picard is, you know, just, they, have, they have different styles, but ultimately, you know, he, he didn't get where he is by, breaking all the rules right yeah two very different approaches right you have you have kirk who's who's the staunch leader i think in the beginning who mellows out in time has a lot of conferences in the staff with with the team with the uh, with the leadership team in many many episodes mm-hmm. even they're in this in episode they have room. a bit they're in the conference room yeah. people forget that people say oh next generation they they go to the observation lounge all the time well you know there's just as many Scenes in the briefing room with, with the original series when you you hear you have you gather your experts you hear their opinion and you base your next move off of that because, you know, uh, as Bone says in the, the motion picture, like your people, they know their jobs, right? Let them let them do their thing, right? And that's what Kirk's doing. He hears the analysis from, he gets reports from everybody. And I like how Scotty gives him like a just meaningless report. He's like, so Scotty, how does this cube work? Oh, I don't know, Captain. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's your <laughs> that's my report. That's your report. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the honesty was pretty cool, but there was some there was some really really good lines. Um, you know, especially in Bailey he says, you know, I vote we phaser it or shoot it or whatever, and he says I'll take that, I'll keep that in mind when this becomes a democracy. <laughs> it just slams him right down, right? And and that's that's the kind of stuff um, as as someone who who leads a group. And if you've ever seen Crimson Tide, Tide, excuse me, Crimson Tide, Gene Hackman's character was very much like uh-huh. you know actually uses that line, you know. We we um, we exist to um, to to save democracy. We don't practice it, right? Yeah. And that's that's a common a common line too. Even in the service, it, it just is. It's like I'll listen and we'll take considerations, but ultimately there's there's one leader that's been trained to do all these things. And don't forget, folks. You know, if you're a captain of a ship, 
you've been trained for many, many years in theory. You know, and I understand the, um, and that's probably the the sticking point they have with the um, the new series or the new movies is you just went right from the academy to the captain seat, and that's a pretty big leap even for for me, mm-hmm. who's a huge Kirk fan, to to see that. Um, you know, and a lot of it is because of the way he can he can kind of outthink and and take risks where people have have um, uh, you know <laughs> they got a little cozy, but anyway. Um, that that was pretty good. Um, yeah, it was also about, about Bailey though. Before we move on too far from that, yeah, yeah I, I like that he's basically you know if to, to bring a TNG comparison, he's he's kind of like a, a Barkley, just a, sure. a flawed person in a perfect environment, and and I like that because it just makes everything a lot more relatable. Um, again, he's the point of view character, right? I mean, we like you know in, if any of us like if any of us were put in that situation, we'd probably react that same way. <laughs> you know, not that we're if we didn't have the Starfleet training and all that, you know, we don't have a little different. But it's like, yeah, you know, I, I feel kind of bad for him because, like, man, I, I I might forget to lock phasers too if I was overwhelmed by the situation. Because we've all been in situations where we're overwhelmed by stuff and we freeze up, you know. <laughs> and I feel bad, and I feel bad for Casulu's having to like reach over and do all his work. You know, it's just I they might have played it up a little too much with him, but the, you know, you have less than an hour to get the point across, so you have to show. You know where where this guy's uh, feelings are, uh, but if he if he had displayed this this amount of incompetency <laughs> on a regular basis, he probably still wouldn't be sitting there <laughs> next next to Sulu. So he look he's having a particularly bad day, but the exter- the circumstances are extraneous. <laughs> so anyway, uh, but that, that was that was, that was cool to see. That was cool to see. Just you know, obviously you're not going to make one of the quote unquote main characters be that way. But at this point, there were no main characters established. So like if this was like the first, obviously this is the first episode produced properly in this show. And you saw this, you know, if you saw this first, like you were theoretically supposed to, you would have thought, oh, well, this this guy is just he's the same as Sulu and Scott and McCoy and Uhura. You know, they're all listed in the credits just by their by their last name. So they're all pretty much equal at this point. And you don't know any better. You know, he's, he's the guy sitting next to Sulu. Who's to say that he's the rotating guest star of the week? We know that now looking back. But at the time, everybody's everyone's on equal footing. Right? Yeah, I, I wonder, you know, in those early years. If um, if they never brought Walter Koenig to the show, if sitting in the navigator seat would have been equivalent to being a red shirt, because um, they just have a lot of a lot of navigators or a lot of people that sit in that seat that wind up taking very prominent roles, right? If you if you think about Balance of Terror, if you think about where No Man Has Gone Before, <laughs> this episode, the, those navigators, man, they they uh, they they drive a lot of the plot. So even, I guess even that's on the, the animated series, piece. there's a uh... What is it? Lieutenant Walking Bear. He's the Native American. Uh, I think he's actually takes Sulu's spot in that episode. But but yeah, it's just like whenever we need like a a guest star crew member to you know be part of the essential part of the story, they're always going to sit at one of those two seats. So yeah, good good point there. You know, in in that same episode of TN, was it was it Nagilum? Was that was that the name uh, of the creature? Uh, where, yeah, um, where silence has least, yeah. Where silence has lease, right? Now, I know that it's the, the left side, which then became the con, but even that guy got killed. Yeah, the, the, the <laughs> Wesley takes one shift off, and then that guy that guy dies. And, and he, you know, yeah. he, even though even though in TNG they're green shirts, right? This guy's wearing a red shirt. So it was early enough yeah. in TNG where he was wearing red. Yeah, that's what I mean. So maybe there's just something about sitting on the right side of the captain that's, you know, that that's a high-risk element to things. I, I don't know. But... Um, you know, as we were kind of coming back to Bailey, as you were saying, you know, there's there's an awful lot of training, obviously, that occurs to try to make sure that they have the right people to do the right things. 
and a lot of the training is pretty intense in any service, no matter where you go, to kind of weed those folks out that can't handle it, no matter what it is. And and you see it. And, and that's why they try to make training as realistic as possible. But in the back of your mind, you know it isn't. But when you're out in the elements, when you're out in a storm, when you're out in this and you're training, quote unquote, man, oh man, um, you, you can really kind of see who, who could handle it in the real world and who can't. Um, and then, you know, you wind up taking those people, you know, off your ship, off your boat, off whatever. And it's like, you, you're in charge of inventory, right? Something right. That's, well, you, that's you want to set stressful. people up for success. You, know, you I mean, do. The- and I think that, that Kirk was, was probably pushing this kid a little bit to kind of, um, you know, give him some confidence. Um, you know, it, it seems strange to me that he wasn't relieved a lot sooner. I don't really understand what Kirk was trying to do, but you do see that a lot of times where people are like, no, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to find out what your limit is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, McCoy saw it. Other people, I guess, probably were starting to see it, but for whatever reason, Kirk was a little stubborn and I think it was a big, a big piece of his education and training and command was, you know, you got you got to be a little bit more watchful of these things. Um, but, you know, all in all, it wound up being great. And at the end, when Bailey stays with, with Baylock, he gets the best assignment for an explorer could ever have um, from that from from that point of view. So talk about cultural immersion, was, right? Right. And the and, and Kirk's line, you know, when he says, oh, when Baylock says, oh, one of your best then. And Bailey's like, no, nope, I'm pretty flawed. And Kirk <laughs> just stepped right in. Yep. And I'll get a better officer in return. Didn't, didn't miss a beat. What a great line. You know, just... It just um, just brought a lot of humor and kind of diffuses the whole situation. Like, yeah, you with throwing some shade laughing. at Bailey there, Kirk. <laughs> That's right. It was, it was just you know, it, and you know what? There's there's a lot of guys that do that. You know, they 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 use that humor. Um, you know, we all we're all training and doing things. We all screw up, and and you have to have a lot of humility, and you have to have a a, a sense of humor, which is so important in stressful situations. Oh, absolutely, sometimes. you got to diffuse yeah. that tension for sure. So yeah, so they've unloaded a. Uh, an incompetent officer, and uh, they'll get a better one when uh, when Bailey's tour of duty is up with uh, with Baylock. <laughs> it's, it's, you, know, you know, if this was a later show, maybe we've gotten a second appearance of, of Bailey uh, to kind of follow up on what happened. Of course, this is the episodic television of the 60s, and rarely was there continuity of that degree in the original Star Trek series. But it would have been interesting to uh, to see to see like see how that went right with Bailey, see how he would uh, have uh, what he had learned right from from Baylock and uh it's it's very different what a, what a different experience though right he's you know he's the navigator on the enterprise and now he's just hanging out with Baylock on this huge ship which i can only assume you think about what is the inside of like the big Viserys look like and i always think of like you know forbidden planet or something right this giant you know hallways and you know all kinds of technology and all kinds of cool stuff stuff that we could never see on the 60s right. budget but your imagination fills in the gaps right but yeah it would, it would be cool to get any kind of follow-up and actually there have been some some novels and things of that nature in fact there was a recent novel that just came out uh that's that's i believe it's called um face of the unknown and it's kind of a sequel to uh the corporate maneuver and uh, i've not read it but uh, it's actually a very recent novel, and I've, I'm curious to, to kind of see what, what it's all about and if it kind of follows up on any of these points we've, we've been talking about. So Yeah, being be interesting. I, it's funny, you know, uh, I'm reading a book that, that you gave me, thank you, and, and it's, it's hard um, to keep up <laughs> with all the things in the books. I, uh, <laughs> if, you know, I, I don't know how the folks at Literary Treks do it. I don't know where they find the time. I really don't. God bless them. I, I, I'd love to. Um, well, they, they, they it, probably, it would, they're in the Nexus, Ken, so they get... <laughs> uh, 
Okay. Well, that explains everything. <laughs> but at any rate, yeah, it, 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 it would be fun. And, and I used to be a big novel reader back when I was a lot younger um, and seemed to have time. One thing I want to hit on, Zach, was your opinion. This is, this is the first time, I think, uh, I think she's in the other episodes, but this was the first time that she was on the show was Janice Rand. Uh-huh. Um, and, and I thought it was interesting, you know, when she comes into the captain's quarters with um, his, new, his new dietary food, which was, you know, just a salad, I guess, essentially. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> what is this? Some great lines there. And also where he says, you know, um, if I can talk to the, to the person that, that set me up with a female yeoman. Um, I thought was a, was an interesting line. Um, most yeoman in the military, well, maybe I'm wrong. It could probably be more male than female. I don't know. But uh, yeoman's typically an admin rate. Uh, so I thought that was was kind of interesting. And uh, um, and and I think McCoy asked him. I forget the line he says, but I remember Fox. I mean Kirk's reply was, "I've already got one female to worry about. Her name is Enterprise." Yeah, he's like, "You don't trust and- yourself, Jim." <laughs> <laughs> something like that yeah yeah uh, no uh for rand yeah it's uh she's funny in this episode because she's she's bringing the captain salad and then later on she's bringing him like bringing everybody coffee and like yeah. i thought the whatever's were down she's like oh i just used a hand phaser to heat up the coffee she's passing out coffee and she's <laughs> it's just it, it creates a very casual environment you know which is uh interesting to see and the, a lot of these early episodes you see people just hanging out Chomping on snacks, drinking coffee. It's like you know, if, if I was on the, hey, you tell me, Ken. But if I was on the bridge of a naval destroyer, I don't think I'd just be eating some food cubes or whatever we <laughs> we do in this episode. I don't know. I see. It seems rather casual. Everybody has their coffee. You know, um, <laughs> my hands are forever crooked. Uh, as the <laughs> as the reputation for um, chiefs, senior chiefs, and master chiefs go in the Navy that, you know, you never see them without a coffee cup in their hand. In fact, even the statue that they created for the chief petty officer has him with one hand on a Samson post, you know, that what you tie off a ship to a, a pier pole um, with a cup of coffee. <laughs> what, but was it was it a Dixie cup, though, with a little line around it? That's classic 23rd century. No, that, that's, a, that's, that's a space coffee cup. That, that technology has not been invented yet, right? <laughs> That's right. So space coffee cups are obviously very different right. from today's but, coffee so, cups. So, so Rand, though, I guess, was she doing what a yeoman would do on a ship? Because uh, my only point of reference for what a yeoman is is Star Trek. <laughs> so, <laughs> No, I, 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 well, you know. I, Handing the captain funny. the captain's log, you know, that kind of stuff, right? Is that is that what they do on, on ships? I don't the know. The captain's log today, I think, is is probably recorded more, but they still have a, a handwritten log that's done by usually somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually, too, on a ship, the captain and the first officer are very rarely on the bridge, uh, mm-hmm. only only at times when they're needed, you know, when there's an exercise or there's something, because they're, they're off running different elements of the ship, and the officer of the deck actually commands it, which makes sense, right? Because... You know, in every Star Trek episode, regardless of what it, what it is, you always have the captain in the center seat, the first officer to the right or left, depending on what episode it is. And that's just not how it works. It's like, man, it's just like um, the easiest job. I, I, I just sit in this chair. Yeah, and it's not and feasible. Wait for something right? to you happen. Can't, <laughs> right. You know, you can't, you know, they said they were waiting for 18 hours. It reminds me of, uh, I just did a Nemesis rewatch, you know, waiting 17 hours. And right. it's like, you wouldn't be sitting in that chair for that 17 hours. That is not hours. an yeah. efficient use of your time, sir. No. <laughs> so the executive officer is actually portrayed very accurately in TNG. Mm-hmm in terms of a lot of the orders that he gives or she gives and usually has an 
an office somewhere in the ship, and the executive officer is actually responsible for running the day-to-day. That is his role, setting up the plans, all that other stuff. You know, the captain's more strategic, you know, looking over the overall and, and the running of the ship. versus four shifts, right, Ken? Very important. That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and the folks that um, they, have, they call the officer of the deck, who's actually on the bridge making sure that the ship stays on course. The captain's orders are laid out um, so they know exactly what they're supposed to be doing that day. And if they run drills or if there's an operation, like I said, well, then, okay, then, then things change. You usually have. The captain, the executive officer, you know, maybe one's on the bridge, one's down in combat, whatever. But, um, you know, getting back to your question about the yeoman, that's a little different. Usually if it's if it's a um, if it's a capital ship or if it's a, a big ship, um, there might be somebody that's assigned to the captain, uh, an aide or something along those lines. Um, or they'll just send a runner, right? If the captain wants food or something like that. Then Schmedlap, I always use that term, but that's absolutely <laughs> right. They'll have some seamen or whatever. They'll be like, "Hey, you know, go or you know, go grab some some crew." Or there'll be people down in the galley actually who are responsible for feeding the men and women on a ship. If they're at general quarters and they can't leave, they will send runners out with food. Right. So mm-hmm. um, they they always come up with these things. The, the Janus Rand. It was funny. I was thinking about it. I've got um, uh, an admin, you know, where I work. And very similar, you know, you're working long days or whatever, and almost like a mother. And, you yeah. know, I, <laughs> my husband does the same thing. She'll be in and she'll be like, have you eaten today? And I was like, Would yeah, you I'm stop good, hovering you know? over me, yeah. yeoman? Yeah, that type of uh, Yeah, it's funny. It kind of, I get it, it a lot, it, but that had happens. It, it carries over from uh, the cage almost, right? With, with Pike getting used to having a, a female yeoman as well. Cause a lot of these early episodes, Kirk is a lot like Pike, right? Because I mean, it was, that was the mindset they were writing the characters in, you know, as, as Shatner continues on with the role, they, they cater it more to his sensibilities, right? But in these early episodes, you can see a lot of uh, parallels between, you know, the, the character established by, you know, Jeffrey Hunter's Pike and the cage. And then now, you know, who William Shatner is playing as Kirk here. He's like, he is a lot more serious, <laughs> In these episodes, although I will say when, you know, talking about these scenes with with Rand, you know, I love this scene. One of my favorite scenes probably in the episode and, and in the original series here is between uh, Kirk and Bones and they're they're talking and um, they get the they get the update from from Spock like efficiency at 94 percent, Captain. And Kirk's like, let's try get it up to 100, Mr. Spock. And Spock says, agreed. <laughs> <laughs> it's, right. it's so perfect, right? That's exactly what Spock would say. And then Bones like Bones is like, "What are you gonna do with that six percent, Jim?" He's like, "Well, I'm gonna take it, and I'm gonna." And then, and then of course they get interrupted by Rand, but it's just you know, it's just a very human <laughs> moment, right? And I, and I love yep. that. It just and again, like this, the characters are so well formed and well established here in what is their you know second episode together for Kirk and Spock and first episode for McCoy. So I mean, a real testament to the writers and the, and the actors really for, for figuring these guys out. And, you know, we get, we get shouty Spock a little bit at the beginning. He's like photographing. And and then of course he, he like berates Bailey for raising his voice later on. It's like, Hey Spock, take your own advice, man. (laughs) Yelling about photographing things and stuff. So there's a little, you know, Spock's still a little rough around the edges, but uh, for the most part, I mean, you really understand where he's coming from and you know i like later on you know i mentioned it in the summary where um he he deduces that they have been you know checkmated right and kirk's like right. that's it there's no other options and he starts to say i'm sorry but then he stops himself and he says i regret that i'm unable to find any more logical alternatives right and I'm like man that is so that is so like language through the spock filter 
right? I mean, that's so good because that that shows you like his even in the face of death, he's going to be professional, much like you know, much like in Wrath of Khan, right? He's 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 dying from radiation, but he stands up and he straightens his uniform, right? Right? Because that right. that's what Spock does. I'm like, man, this is like from Episode Two for Spock, uh, so well established here. I know in a Leonard Nimoy's book, you know, I Am Spock, he talks about. How the director of this episode, whose name escapes me at the moment, excuse Joe me, Joe Sargent. Okay, Joe, Joe Sargent. Right. He helped him kind of establish the Spock character, right? Because they wanted some kind of reaction from Spock when they see the Viserys, and uh, he just says, "Fascinating," right? And that that became right. like him, Nimoy, working with the director there, Joseph Sargent, as you said, again, that informed Spock, and that became like his catchphrase, right? For I mean, there's live long and prosper. There's fascinating, right? These that's like if you had a Spock action figure. You know, you push a button, he says five things. Right? That would That's right. that would be one of them, right? And it's all it's the yep. genesis here in this episode. So that's cool. I, I I that's I think that's why I really love this episode so much is the dynamic of the crew. That in you know, it's a well oiled machine. Considering how early they made this episode, it felt like the chemistry was right. Bones fit right in. You know, cantankerous pain in the ass. Um, Spock second in command but at the very beginning of the episode he is in charge he's running everything no problem uh kirk you know um shows a lot of trust and confidence in his team right he's running up he's he's coming out of a physical and he's going up to the bridge and he's like you know is anything going on fine i'm gonna go change first you know so in other words you guys got this right and and i'll get there when i get there you know there wasn't there wasn't anything that that needed him and there's a lot of people out there whose egos would never allow that you know, up. Oh, I've got to be the. I've got to be the guy in the center because there's there's an emergency. Instead of trusting his team, and then when he goes down to his cabin uh, with with McCoy, when they're running the drills, you can hear all the drills running in the background. Uh-huh. You know, you hear the communications going back and forth or whatever. It's like, you know, this ship felt very real, very operational, very tangible. Um, and that's that's something that you know the um, the time it was made and you look at it through our eyes now fifty years later, which is incredible, yeah. and and you say okay, you know it, it doesn't it doesn't look and feel as quote unquote real as as the newer shows do, but this one really did to me. It was just something that really that that I really got caught up in. It's like yeah, that's how this should work. Yep, that's that's what's really happening in the background. Um, everybody had their bits and parts. And I think as time went on, you know, that, that part of the show got a little lost. Uh, it, it became more of the big three. Mm-hmm. Um, there were aspects of it in other shows, but this was one where you saw all the elements of what it's like to, to run a vessel. And they, they, I thought they hit it out of the park. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously they do you know, dramatic shorthand as the series progresses. You know I mean? You have Kirk, sure. Spock and McCoy doing everything, like even at the end, right? Kirk says, beaming over, taking two people, taking Dr. McCoy, Bailey, you come too. And Spock's like, request permission to, and Kirk says, no, request denied. If it is a trap, if something goes wrong, I want you here. And that's the way they should do it, right? That's the way you, can, you shouldn't be bringing the captain and the first officer and the chief medical officer on every single away mission. But, I mean, that's what they do because, of course, Shatner and Nimoy and Kelly are, are the big three. They're the big stars, and you want them at the center of all the action. You want to see those characters interact, right? That's part of the that's part of the fun of Star Trek is seeing you know these guys. You want to see them in situations, and you want to see what their reactions to the situations and each other in those situations are. And you put them together, and you, you put them on the adventures. But, yes, uh, just strategically speaking, tactically speaking, not the smartest move to bring the captain, the first officer everywhere. And this episode addresses that once again, Ken, as you said, like, yeah, that's the way, that's the way it should be. This the, operationally, this checks out, right? 
Yeah, yeah, and I, and I know they made those corrections as as other shows took over, and they kind of thought it through a little bit more. But then you started to see uh, in other series where the captain was like, "I don't have anything to do." <laughs> <laughs> and getting frustrated and and they kind of changed the formula a little bit more back to the way the original series worked uh-huh. just because you needed to have that you know if you're going to spend big bucks on a on a big name star which is why i think discovery will work very well by the way like okay? look at the modern day because tie and look people, at you ken that's right well hey man I, i'll tell you you know most of the people that do the operations are not the executive officer or the first officer it's Whoever you know, if if you're going to go board another ship, you have a boarding party that's led by usually uh, a chief, a senior chief, maybe um, uh, a mid-level officer. Uh, That's just the way things work. Uh They very rarely do anything themselves other than make sure the ship is safe and that uh, it's well protected and that the mission is being executed. So that's why when I was like, oh, okay, if they're going to have this lieutenant commander uh, in Discovery be the center focus of the ship— that's actually more believable because they would probably be assigned to doing a lot more things than the captain, the executive officer would ever be. Because running the day-to-day elements of a ship after the first or second episode would not be very sexy to watch. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just wouldn't. You know, what, what's the engine level? How's our fuel? You know, how's our ammunition? How's our training efficiency? What's for dinner tomorrow? You know, that. <laughs> it's yeah, a, those, you know, those it's, episodes it, are good every now and then to kind of change the point of view. Yeah. Like the lower decks, right? One of the one of the best, most creative episodes of the next generation, because you're seeing something that you see every week from a different perspective, right? But That's it, right. but if you permanently shifted to that perspective, it, it would get old after all. Like, man, I, I I really do wonder what they're talking about in the conference room there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that that that's that's why I say what I say that that discovery could really um, give you a, a view, right? I mean, there's there's been plenty of TV shows, you know, uh, comedies and other things where um, the person in charge is certainly not the star, uh-huh. you know, um, it, it, you know they're in there somewhere, but it's it it could be another element of a ship, it could be another element of a, a team, you know, like platoon or whatever. What it you know you're you're not focused around the person who is in charge. You're focused around the people that are executing the mission, uh-huh. and that's very realistic. Right. You know, I mean, if you've ever seen American Sniper, you never once meet the commanding officer or the SEAL team. <laughs> you just don't, you know, any of them. It's just funny. It's just, nope, these are the guys. They've been given their mission, and so now the story is to follow the mission. And they could do that very easily with Discovery, and it could be just as interesting. In fact, more interesting to me in many aspects. All right, well, I'll, I'll look forward to it in a few months, Ken. So. Yeah, if, if they ever get it done, yeah. That'd be nice. Well, you know, let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about Baylock's point of view during all mm-hmm. this. Like, what... What is his what is his angle here, Ken? What what are your thoughts on on his on his game of of uh, cat and mouse or deception or whatever whatever you want to call it, right? Not not cat, not cat and mouse is not the correct terminology, but you know what what bait and switch would be the more <laughs> appropriate terminology there. What are your thoughts on on, on his game? What, what what's he playing at here? Well, I, I you know I would imagine that uh, they have a, a territory and an area that they, they wish to defend and keep safe. So if people are going to come exploring into their space, they want to know their character. They want to understand how they would deal with things. Um, obviously, they have the technology to play all the games and pull all the triggers they want. I thought it was interesting when Baylock says, you know, you could have been, your, your, your memory banks could have been loaded with deceptive data, right? <laughs> so it's like we have to, we have to test reality. Hashtag paranoid versus, right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, obviously um, that's based on something. And I'm sure that uh, 
you know, they've had experiences with, with other races in theory that maybe they thought they were one way and they turned out to be another. And this is a great test. Uh-huh. And of course, the, the ultimate test was when Baylock's ship was quote unquote disabled quite on purpose. What did they do next? Did they just leave? Did they fire on it? Did they do all these things? Nope. They went over there. So it was really a true test. It was, it was Kobayashi Maru uh-huh. um, for, for, for Baylock looking at these guys and seeing how they handle death, how they handle stress what's their true intentions is it you know is it evil you know think about it if that was the klingons that buoy would have been destroyed um they would have been firing all the way in theory right um right. at at the Viserius, it would have been very very different so so i guess Baylock would have destroyed the klingons <laughs> my that would be my I guess, mean, he's yeah. a friendly little guy but <laughs> you know, i wouldn't i wouldn't mess with it well yeah you know i mean even the enterprise he you know, just before the engines get to the point of blowing up, just at that, you know, he, he really played it right to the numbers, right? There was a lot of tension in this. Right. You know, there was a lot of tension. So, yeah, he, 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 he was going to push them to, to every limit that he could to really, to really test if the, um, if the Federation's intentions were, were sincere. And that's, you know, that was, that was pretty cool. I thought. So yeah, yeah. from Baylock's point of view, it, it made sense. Yeah, and, you know, First Federation, kind of a pretentious title to name yourselves. Uh, it kind of reminds me of, like, when you're driving through town and you see, like, First Baptist Church and First... It's like, how many First... <laughs> How many firsts are there? Who's keeping track of who was first during all this? But uh, anyway, no, but uh, yeah, no, but, that's a different viewpoint yeah. there, Zach. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> but the first federation, rather pretentious title for yourselves. That that's fine. That's fine. Um, yeah. So you know the whole the whole puppet thing is an interesting approach. Like I said in my summary, I I probably have been more frightened if he saw little Clint Howard's face up on there, up on the view screen with that you know wavy image. And it's funny, you know, I'm I'm sure you know I'm put, putting yourself in the position of someone watching Star Trek for the first time, right? They they've seen the movies and they're like, you know what? Let me let me check out what this original series is all about. And they turn on this episode and you see the alien. And they're probably like, what is this? What is this? This looks like a puppet. This is stupid, right? <laughs> That's probably their knee-jerk reaction. And then you find out, oh, it is a puppet. Well, well done, show. You know, a little, little applause there. Right, you know? So right, I feel right, like right. It's a, that's, a, that's a very effective bait and switch. It was like, yes, it was a puppet. And I like the whole wavy kind of effect they have as well uh, to kind of disguise, you know, what's going on there. And, you know, Spock, in this early episode, Spock's always like, he's tapping into something to always get like a visual feed. He does it here. He does it in a balance of terror. Like, where, where, where is he getting this from? Is he hacking into their their, their webcam, so to speak? <laughs> you know, to yeah, see I guess them? so. <laughs> He has a knack for it. <laughs> I was curious to see what they look like. Kirk's like, yeah, of course you were. <laughs> but anyway, um, but yeah, no, the uh, it's interesting, an interesting race here that the the first federation and an interesting way to approach things because obviously, uh, the best way to to judge somebody's character is to see how they um, how they respond to people or things that are worse off than they are, weaker than they are right lower on the totem pole so to speak you know how do you treat those people and those things and people in crisis how are you going to treat them so that is why Baylock. i mean they come he comes out all you know guns blazing we're you know we're this awesome first federation you can't oppose us but then at the end of the episode he's this weak guy in a dying ship and that's the true judge of the character of the enterprise what are they going to do to that guy uh and that's that's the lesson learned and they make friends right so you know with another race as you said the klingons the romulans who knows who else uh, might not have gone that way, right? It would have been a more uh, a more negative ending for for both parties, really. But here, it's a nice happy ending. Altrania is had by all and, and relished. So, 
Yeah, Tranya looked good, by the way. <laughs> I've never had. See, the, the people make Tranya these days. I know these Starship conventions. I think they have like a Tranya party. I didn't. I didn't go Did to they? that. They had like a Tranya summit on <laughs> something like that. I'd be curious. I, it looks. I mean, like, what is it like a Bloody Mary? Like, <laughs> it looks like orange juice to me. It looked orange. Mimo- mimosa, know. excuse me. <laughs> it's just a mimosa, mimosa. There yeah. you go. Yeah, <laughs> Bloody Mary. Yeah, they all they all look pretty happy. You know. And, and <laughs> the um the little board that comes up with the uh the very common little um bowl and <laughs> scoop <laughs> right love it i get a kick out of Be it great at parties I I want that is, for, a, for a party <laughs> yeah I, I think this is a good entryway for for people if you know we we haven't done this many many other shows do um i don't know if it's an idea we want to tackle because it's been done so many times but if you're if you're saying what episode would you want to show to introduce people to the original series, this is a very good one because you'll you'll get a feel for the ship, its mission, its team. You'll get the dynamic. You'll you'll get that it's a very effective, efficient crew. I think you'll you'll learn to respect Captain Kirk very very quickly, mm-hmm. and and his style of things. Um, you know the sense of humor, everything, and and it's it's amazing. You know the first season of Star Trek. I mean. It's amazing to think of how fast they developed that chemistry and how good the show was right from the get-go. It really was. Um, not a lot of uh, uh, Star Treks have had that that um, that same launch. You know, it took time for them to find their to find their footing. But this one, you know, they they really did have lightning in a bottle, and that's why I still remember to this day in '86 when they announced the next generation. They said, "There's no way you can capture lightning in a bottle twice," yeah. and they did, but they didn't find it instantly. No, so. I mean, everybody says, "Oh, you got to give these shows time," you know. And it's like, well, look at the original series. I mean, it, it's it was good from the jump, right? I mean, that's why it's such a sci-fi classic. I mean, there's, I think there's almost 30 episodes in the first season. Small handful of misses. Very small handful of misses. Everything else is great. And that just shows you don't need two or three seasons to get up to speed, right? I mean, you, you can actually have an excellent show off the top. And so ironically, I think of, of all the of all the series, right, of all the Star Trek shows, the original series will be best served in today's environment where you have to be good from episode one or you're going to get canceled by episode six, right? I mean, like, you look at Next Generation, D Space Nine, you know, questionable First seasons, probably they're you know among their weaker seasons of both shows. For example, those wouldn't have lasted past season one or two in today's you know cutthroat television environment. But the original series would have right. If you again, you have to you know translate and extrapolate from there. But you know it's a great great first season, first production episode. You get to know, like you say, can you get to see the whole crew? You get to know everybody. A very good introduction. Now, I, I understand. I mean, looking at these episodes, even if the special effects were done, I know that's why they had to delay this episode. Even if they were done, I could still see maybe NBC picking the man trap over Corbin Knight Mover just because, you know, as you said earlier, it's it's a bottle show. You're on the ship the whole time. You're on the bridge 80% of the time. You might want a little more action, a little more stuff going on. So go down to a planet and a monster on the loose. So I can see why network executives in the 60s would have said, okay, let's, this is good and all, but it's a little too, a little too boring, a little too cerebral, right? And that's, that's the buzzword for NBC in the 60s. So I can see why they would have that mindset perhaps and go with the man trap instead of this one. Uh, but this Maybe. one, this, I... this one does have more of the Star Trek philosophy though, right? Because <laughs> it, it does. I, I just wonder if the, um, the awe, and, and like I said, looking at it now, it's a different thing, and, I, and I'm watching the remastered one, which is pretty good. But even back then, the special effects were a big deal, and that that might have captivated the audience to mm. say, "Wow, this is a a big budget, you know, presentation here." That's a good and point. I think, yeah. You know, and, and the other piece of it too, I, I I don't know how this would have played in black and white 
as most of the TV sh- television sets back in, in the, especially in its first run, the majority were black and white. Um, so it, it probably would have looked even that much better. In other words, without all the colors and everything, it's just like, whoa, that's one big badass ship that's coming down at them. I don't know. I, I mean, sometimes people, I, I know I am very, very impressed and we, we're spoiled and sometimes it's, um, it's almost killing your senses with the amount of special effects that are thrown in shows now. It's just almost overwhelming. But um, when done right, when done with the right measure, the, it, it can be very powerful. And um, I, I, I wonder if that, that might have been a, a difference. But I, I hear exactly what you're saying, because this show, like I said, they could have done this show in a half an hour. Uh-huh. And it would have been, you know, the pacing of the show would have made it as exciting as you know, some of those um, faster adventurous shows that you were talking about. It, it, it would have it would have had a different a different feel. In today's world, that would have been edited incredibly and would be a wonderful reboot show uh, to, to make just with today's uh, effects, I think. It would have been really wild to see. Well, speaking of the effects and the remastered version, I watched the remastered one as well this time. Uh, even though I do have my, I do have the whole original series on Laserdisc, and I often watch them that way. I, I did watch the remastered one of this one because I just, I was curious to to revisit it because I hadn't seen the remastered one since it came out. Gosh, ten years ago now. Yikes. Right. Um, and this is this is really one of the best remastered jobs of the whole series, I think, because nothing is too distracting. You know, the cube almost looks identical. I mean, it's a glowing cube, right? I mean, how much can you, you change re- it at really all. update it, right? Uh, it's just a little cleaner around the edges. You know, the Viserys it looks a little. The, uh, what I can only assume were ping pong balls cut in half <laughs> in the original series that were glowing. Uh, those have, they've added some more texture to those. So uh, the Enterprise doesn't do any crazy maneuvers that you wouldn't, you know, ordinarily see. Uh, in fact, and, and this is, and again, for the remaster, when it works well, it works when it enhances the story, right? So this is whole thing of like the Enterprise breaking away from this tractor beam and you get a really cool shot of it like, okay, we're breaking free and you see it zoom off to the side and it's it, it just makes sense in the story. It's not some crazy barrel roll or anything like that, but it's a ship that's under stress and it breaks away and you just see the momentum carry it off to the side. And that, that kind of stuff is really what enhances the story. Uh, when you mm-hmm. see the visuals of what they're talking about, not like evasive maneuvers, Mr. Sulu, and you see the ship just sitting <laughs> sitting there. Um, and then another thing is the counter, right? The the infamous uh, ca- oh, yeah. counter yeah. from the original episode was literally just the thing you'd see on a... On a what's the terminology for that, Ken? I don't know, but... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's just kind of like this; these rolling numbers. They're rolling numbers of versus straight, a digital number. Yeah, yeah, straight out of the 1960s. Yeah. And they made it a digital readout, which which was cool to see, which we'll definitely have in the 23rd century. So, yeah, so his yeah, remaster that, goes big thumbs up for the remastering job on this one. Yeah, it was very subtle and well done. Actually, I, I yes. like the um, the the colors from the cube reflecting back on the ship was something that I noticed, too. Mm-hmm. You know, that was, that was kind of neat. And that was very realistic, I thought. When it was spinning, but they, they they did it right. It was it was that right measured, which they did throughout the whole remaster. They they didn't they didn't go crazy with it. They just they made it so an audience today could appreciate it a little bit more, um, you know. And, and now I watch for things I didn't watch before. It's like, oh, okay, does it have the balls at the end of the ship now, or the end of the engines and things like that? Yeah. <laughs> now, now now I'm like I'm clued in because of all the conversations we've had on things to look at but yeah they 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 did it right the remastered is is a great way to watch it but the original version i've got the uh, the dvds so you can watch them either way mm-hmm. and um you know I, t- I tend to watch the remastered now and like i said before i'm hopeful that they they go back again 
to really try to hook in, and because I think they'd make money off it, but I don't know. They've probably already studied it. But if if you took the the original series and and you made it even more modern, um, you know the backdrops and the and everything like we've seen on a YouTube, I I, I would guess it would sell. I guess we'll see when Discovery comes out and they have the whole portfolio out there and what the draw is. And um, Let, let's if, let's if get D Space Nine and Voyager in HD first, and then we can worry about that. Huh? That's right. That's right, and that's that's where I'm going. If um, if if that works, if 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 Discovery pulls in enough, um, you know, it's a shame too because I don't know if you saw about three or four weeks ago, the remerger of CBS and Paramount failed. Mm. So you know, from from just a a Star Trek point of view, that would have been great because we would have been back to one owner, where you you look at the franchise as one holistic entity. Um, and the funds that, that that drive it would be all commingled or back together again. Now it's it's still two separate entities, the movies which they're investing a ton of money in still, um, versus the TV show. Which you know, uh, one of the points you were making earlier, Zach, was that it takes a while to find their footing, which is precisely why um, they don't put it on uh, network television because Star Trek they say would not succeed, just wouldn't. Right, it needs that time. Just like TNG was syndicated, it worked. Um, uh, D- Deep Space Nine was syndicated. Its its ratings struggled uh, a lot. Uh, and then when they put the the last two series on on a network, quote unquote, UPN network, obviously um, they they struggled for an audience. Even though Voyager made it a whole seven, and Enterprise just made it for four. So I think they're doing it right. They're 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 actually playing right to the audience that that wants to see it. And we'll see if it drives even more viewers to CVS All Access. And if they have their whole portfolio out there and you want to watch, particularly Deep Space Nine and Voyager in, in, in high def, and who doesn't, um, you know, maybe this will this will cr- cause them to do that because um, you can't watch these shows, you know, even watching the BBC sometimes, they don't have the remastered TNG on, and it's just like, ooh. It's, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's tough different. to watch. It's tough to go back, right, once you, once you yeah. see it in HD, for sure. So hopefully, this is New Year's weekend, so there's a there's a big um, TOS marathon going on the BBC. It's all remastered. looks brilliant. looks brilliant. So, you know, it'd be nice to see if those two shows could get that same treatment. Indeed. More DS9, I you know, that was what I'd really like to see. We love all Star Trek here on Standard Where We Can. We do. I just I'd like to see them do it in order as as production, and uh, and Deep Space Nine would be fun. I, I own the whole disc series for D- Deep Space Nine. I've owned it for years, and um, it was fun to rewatch with my with my daughter years ago. And it's like okay, now I'd really like to see what what they. Could yeah, do I was with, I was holding off the... on rewatching you know Deep Space Nine and Voyager right because I said okay, well D- TNG is going to get its Blu-ray treatment. Rewatching that in HD. You know, I've seen so many of these episodes so many times from the other shows. I'm gonna, I'm gonna wait, and we're gonna revisit it in HD. And you know, we're still waiting, still waiting. on it in HD. I know they're they're re-releasing the DVD packages next year. It's like, oh, or by no, 2017 now. Happy New Year! Uh, it's like, oh, good, we're getting the DVDs again. Oh, they are repackaged, no Blu-rays. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay, well, anyway. Well, I guess have they ever have they ever offered one huge package of all the series and movies? No, that would be insane. That, that would be, how many discs would that be? 
<laughs> the Dude, the, you, the you closest, know, you're always looking. You're always looking to remarket something, right? The, the closest they've and, the, the closest they've come is they did release uh, all the original series movies, the original series, and the animated series all together this year, and that special right. release. And it's like, well, I already have most of this stuff already, <laughs> so I'm not gonna. The one thing that would have pushed me over the edge is if they had put the uh, Star Trek the motion picture director's mm-hmm. cut in HD, then I would have bought the new set, but they didn't. So no, they you're right. They 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 did Blu-ray the motion picture, but it's the original version. Right. And it's well because the well when they redid the directors, if we're getting all this uh, uh, staple of standard orbit, our tangents here, right? Uh, class, <laughs> but just bear with us, folks. So they uh, when they redid Star Trek the motion picture the director's edition, obviously it was in standard definition for the uh, you know for the DVD at the time. Now they made the special effects in a way they could up convert them, right? But that. You know, time, manpower, computer power, all that. You got to, you know, re-edit and you got to pay for all that stuff. And that money's got to come from somewhere, right? And uh, unfortunately, because, you know, the CBS and the Paramount Rift, you know, the, the remastering of the films has not been anywhere near the quality or, you know, the attention to detail that the remastering of the shows have been, right? So I don't know, man. I, I, I like you. I was hoping that CBS and Paramount would get back together and maybe we could, you know, revisit some of these things we've been hoping to see for a while and the director's yeah. edition of the motion picture in HD is certainly one of them. So, yeah, that would be if if there was anything I'd like to see first before any of them, it'd be that. But anyway, we'll see where it goes. Cool. Well, any final thoughts on this episode, then, Ken? Just just watch it if you haven't seen it in a while. Watch it. Join us on the Babel conference. Give us your comments. Looking through it after all these after all this time, if you've been watching a lot of other Star Trek lately. If you've been watching a lot of the other series, which I think is great, I would never say no, don't, um, come back and, and, and check this one episode out and, and see how it, how it plays to you, how it measures up to a lot of the other series that have, like I said, this, this, this is an original Star Trek episode that began a very, maybe one of these episodes we can come back and we can talk about all the different shows that mirrored this in the future, but um, we could do that with our... Um, Earl Grey and TTJ friends one of these days and Enterprise, you know, we, we find an episode that's similar in how it was handled. But uh, I, I think you'll appreciate this being the one that started it all. Absolutely. You know, and I will encourage you guys, look, if you only listen to one Star Trek podcast, listen to Standard <laughs> Orbit. But if you listen to two Star Trek podcasts, listen to Standard Orbit and Mission Log, right, which is, you know, we're happy to have on a Trek FM network here with uh, John Champion and Ken Ray. And they have a great episode uh, on their podcast discussion about the Corbin Wright movie. They hold this up as like one of the finest hours of Star Trek, which really, you know, embodies, encapsulates what Star Trek and its philosophy is all about. And they're absolutely right. You know, listening to Mission Log, gosh, it's been, I don't know how long ago when they, I mean, when they first started, this was one of the first episodes they did. And it's like, man, they, they gave me a new appreciation for this episode, right? Listening oh, to the conversation. Yeah, I haven't listened yeah, to yeah, it. So it's, yeah, so definitely, I recommend it to you, Ken, I recommend it to anybody out there. Um, and then if you listen to more than two, Podcasts. There, we have lots of other great ones here on Trek FM, but, <laughs> but anyway, I just I just wanted to to give them a shout out there because that's a great podcast and that's a great conversation about the Corbinite maneuver. An often overlooked episode gets lost in the shuffle when people talk about the original series. And then finally, during our during our discussion here, uh, not that I wasn't paying attention to you, Ken, with everything you were saying, but I did look up <laughs> I did look up the uh, the book that just came out. It's called The Face of the Unknown, which I mentioned earlier. It is a okay. sequel to the Corbinite maneuver. Uh, it's by Christopher L. Bennett, who is, you know, a very noted author who's, who's wrote, yeah. written many, many a novel, many a Star Trek novel. 
And I'll just read you guys the description here so you can kind of know what to expect. So if, when you watch this episode based off our recommendation, of course, you're like, yeah, First Federation, all right, good stuff, and you want to follow up, this would be a good book to pick out, and it just came out in December of 2016, so it's you know fresh off the press. Fresh. Wow, that is new. Um, yeah. And th- this, is the, this is the description. Investigating a series of violent raids by a mysterious predatory species, Captain James T. Kirk discovers that these events share a startling connection with the First Federation, a friendly but secretive civilization contacted early in the USS Enterprise's five-year mission. Traveling to the First Federation in search of answers, the Enterprise suddenly comes under attack from these strange martyrs. Seeking refuge, the starship finds its way to the true home of the First Federation, an astonishing collections of worlds hidden from the galaxy beyond. The inhabitants of this isolated realm are wary of outsiders, and some accuse Kirk and his crew for bringing the wrath of their ancient enemy down upon them. When an attempt to stave off disaster goes tragically wrong, Kirk is held fully accountable, and Commander Spock learns there are even deeper forces that threaten this civilization. If Kirk and Spock cannot convince the First Federation's leaders to overcome their fears, the resulting catastrophe could doom them all. Well, I don't know about you. But that sounds pretty exciting. So yeah, that sounds really cool. Uh, I don't know if Bailey plays a role in that. Maybe I would. I would assume he'll at least uh, you know garner a mention. But uh, there you go. There's there's a nice follow up to the Corbinite maneuver in book form, fresh off the presses, guys. So definitely go check that one out. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'll be watching too to see if Literary Checks pulls that up. Well, it's been fun discussing the Corbinite maneuver, but that isn't the only thing we've been talking about on Trek FM this past week. Here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm. Earl Grey. And then as kind of a teenager, I kind of drifted a bit from Star Trek. And, you know, I pretended one time when I went to see Star Trek Nemesis that I was actually off to see Elf instead because that sounded cooler than seeing Star Trek Nemesis. And maybe it still is. To the journey! Maybe even playing it with Tuvok, who I think will be brilliant at it. And then then it just constantly going, like I'm just getting really annoyed. Tuvok would be the Operation Champ. Yeah, he would. Yeah. See, and then the evil holographic doctor from Equinox is singing, you know, the particular nodes connected to the... <laughs> yes. Warp 5. We should get Larry Nemechek on, and we should do a supplemental episode where we just talk and we act like we're Tellarites and we just insult each other for the whole episode. <laughs> he would probably love it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? I think it's a good idea. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. That would be... I might have to get coached by our listeners. Meta Trex. And that's that's the world of language that we live in. It's not this this purely referential sense of language. Like when Riker says a minuet, he doesn't just mean, oh, yeah, that thing minuet that I can point to, whatever that is on the holodeck, right? 17th century French dance. Maybe maybe he wants to dance. <laughs> Riker wants to bust a move. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So you can find us on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can always stream or download the MP3 file from our website at trek.fm and grab the RSS link as well. If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. That makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes and helps us increase our visibility for new listeners. If you would like to get in touch with us here at trek.fm, you can always find us on trek.fm contact and look in the sidebar on the show page or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm, facebook.com slash trekfm, and the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or go to our website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar.
So let me talk to you for a second about Patreon, Zach. Patreon is the program that Trek FM employs in order to get donations to keep the network coming to you commercial free. It is wonderful. Most of the hosts here on Trek FM are big contributors to Patreon and found our way onto the network through Patreon. So if you can uh, spare any money, uh, and we don't care what the denomination is, it really means a lot to us because there is a lot of content that we're putting up there, a lot of bandwidth, a lot of programming, a lot of equipment that we need. So please, if you can help us out, we'd appreciate it. And all you have to do is go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash FM. And you can you can click any donation you want. And we do have some incentives for you. So for $15 a month, you get to join the Patrons Roundtable where you podcast. And, and, you know, again, that is where a lot of us started. It was on the roundtable. I was on the very first one. I had a blast. And if you can contribute $25 or more per month, then you get associate producer credits for whatever show you like. And we love our associate producers. So... Please, 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 if you if you have the ability, it is more than appreciated. And speaking of our associate producers, we'd like to thank Renee Roberts, Richard Rutledge, and Aaron Harvey. Thank you so much, always, for your support for both Standard Orbit and the Trek FM network. You can find Renee on Twitter at MRES underscore 1701. You can find Richard at RUT8972. And you can find our buddy Aaron Harvey at GeekFilter. So if you're looking for me on the network, you can you can find me on the Babel Conference. I'm always on there, uh, pre-post shows, talking different subjects with all our listeners. And you can also find me on Twitter, at Boston SCPO. That means Boston Senior Chief Petty Officer. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach. That's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H. And I'm also the host of my own podcast called Always Hold On to Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that young Superman show from the early 2000s. And we're on Twitter at AlwaysMallville with one S. And also, I'm around the Babel Conference as well. It's always great to talk to you guys on there, making conversation about our shows, other shows, general Star Trek topics, anything, really. Love to talk to you guys on there. So thanks for listening, everyone. And join us again next time here on Trek.fm for another episode of Standard Orbit. Standard Orbit.